Amen. Thanks, Jimmy. Welcome, everybody. My name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors here at the West Congregation of the Austin Stone. Merry Christmas to you, and I'm glad you all made it out. It's a joy and a delight to be able to share this special occasion with you. If you have kids with you in the room, don't worry about them. They're going to wriggle and squeal and um, make a noise. What a wonder to consider at this time of year that Jesus Christ himself never escaped childhood, Right? He was an infant and a toddler, and so I'm sure needed to be quieted by Mary in a variety of shul services um, as he grew in wisdom and understanding. What a wonderful thought. And so we don't quiet their voices, right? We don't stress about it. We enjoy the wonder um, of having them in the room with us. Today we remember and celebrate a remarkable claim, but what I wanted to remind us of today is that it's actually an historical claim. Christianity makes a few of those, right? The resurrection's a big one. It's a, it's a bananas claim. It's, a, it's incredible that billions have believed this, that a dead man came to life again, right? And the incarnation is another one of those claims that we keep almost on the level of fable or myth, but that the Bible describes to us as history. It makes the claim of God becoming flesh in an unapologetically testable and a rooted in lived history sort of way. The gospel accounts don't start with words like once upon a time or even a long, long time ago or especially in a galaxy far, far away, right? They start with names and places and seasons. We heard it in the reading of Luke earlier on. They talk about, oh, okay, so who was Caesar? Tiberius was Caesar, ruled over Rome. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests, right? And then this infant, Jesus, enters the scene in this very particular time at this very particular place, a testable claim. You can go through the history books and say like, well, well, was he Caesar? And was he governor of Judea? And were they high priests named like this? It's not trying to be a myth. Why does it matter? It matters because the story is so familiar to us that I think there's a danger for us that we reduce the claims of Christmas to the lowest possible denominators of sentimental myth that we've attached to it. And we've got some beautiful myths attached to Christmas, right? I'm not gonna ruin them for anybody in the room here. Some of them are beautiful. But you see the story that a special one a messianic figure was born and that he was born to save his people through living a remarkable life in the midst of the difficulty of an unjust empire. As I tell that story, you should go, wait, that sounds like a lot of other stories. Exactly. This isn't a unique story. In fact, uh, it's the root story that inhabits so much of common mythology. Every superhero story has the same narrative arc as the story that we tell of Jesus coming into the world as a savior. But... Christianity doesn't let us off the hook. It doesn't say this is just one story amongst many. It insists that this baby born into Judean poverty and obscurity was the God of the universe, right? Here's how Matthew describes it. This is after Matthew has described the genealogy of Jesus that runs all the way back to Abraham, right? Rooted in real people, actual events. He's speaking history, 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 history. And then he says, Behold, the word in the Hebrew is pay attention. What he's saying is don't slip into myth. Don't slip into familiarity. Behold, look at this truth. The virgin shall conceive. Now that should stop you in your tracks and go like, that's impossible, right? Exactly. The story of the incarnation is that God breaks through the curtain. 
that God intervenes in the creation that he's made. Why? It's his creation. And so he can do with it whatever he wants. And she shall conceive and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now Matthew knows, right, that we love fantasy, that we love myth. And so he doesn't just let us say, oh yeah, his name shall become Emmanuel. That'll become like another mythical name, like Rumpelstiltskin, right? Um, He explains to us, look now, he puts in brackets, just so you don't think that this is just some kind of in the clouds myth, it means God with us. God with us. What a claim. It's ludicrous. It's unbelievable. It's the claim of those three words that have changed the history of the cosmos. And it's what we as a church have focused on specifically for the last three weeks. But you might argue it's this claim that the church globally has focused on for 2,000 years. It presupposes so many things of cosmic importance. God, this infant, was God. Now I know some Parents here in the western suburbs of Austin treat their children like gods, right? But if you've ever been near an infant, you know that the idea of them being the divine force, the cosmic ruler, that's quite a big stretch, right? They lie there like a burrito. You can roll them around. They don't do anything significant. They require everything from you, except this infant, while Mary is swaddling him, the claim is the one who's being swaddled is the same one who stretched his arms out across the sky and created the cosmos. What a claim. What a claim. And the next word, with. He came to be with his creation. This is, this is unique to Christianity. Every other ideology and, and worldview, whether it be religious or not, has an understanding that we need to escape from our base humanity in order to live up on some kind of higher plane of understanding. Either that's to get to some kind of divine understanding or just to self-actualization, but you need to escape your pure base humanity in order to do it. Christianity alone says, no, no one escapes, God joins with it. That the divine stoops low and participates with humanity and does it how? In poverty and in suffering and in pain. Friends, some of you might go, how can you believe in a good God when there's so much suffering in the world, right? That question's not unique to Christianity. Every worldview has the problem of pain, right? Perhaps most so those who say there is no God because then you ought not to see pain as a bad thing, right? Pain should just be the whittling of the herd. We only see pain as a bad thing because we know we were made for a place without pain. We know there's that divine image within us. So now what do we do? Well, Christianity alone offers a God who stoops low and participates in pain with you. So now you can make sense of your experience. Now you can have companionship and and now you can have that sovereign strength that can help you endure anything because God came to be with us. The last word, though, is the word that I want to focus on today. I know it's warm in here. You're going to go get uh, to be in the Texas Arctic tundra after this um, in a second. So you're guaranteed to have pneumonia by 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. Um, But the last word is us. Uh, If we're paying attention, the word us should raise a question. Who is us? If the God of the universe comes to be with people, what sorts of people do we think he would come to be with? Is there space for us (laughs) in their number? Well, today, I think the answer is yes. There's hope in Christmas. Part of the Christmas message is that we get to be part of the great us. Well, how can I be sure of that? Well, we can tell what sort of people make up the great us by examining the family line that Jesus came from, the sort of friends that he was prepared to hang out with, 
and the types of followers that he entrusted to carry his message. Just briefly, here we go. Firstly, the family that Jesus comes from tells us that he is with us, no matter what our story is. Your story might be messy, friends. No messier than Jesus's, though. (laughs) Many of you will be with family today and tomorrow. There will be blessing and pain in that, right? Isn't that true? There's blessing in the companionship of other people united by blood, right? And there's pain because those people sin against us and against others. And there's the pain of that. There will be the pain of people who have sinned against us so much that they're no longer at that table. There will be the pain of the loss of people who perhaps didn't sin against us but who have just passed on, who are living in another part of the world. And so their presence is missing. And so there's a, a pleasure and a pain to it. Some of you will be away from family today and tomorrow. And there will be a pain in that and perhaps some blessing in that too. What are families? They are multi-generational stories that shape us into who we are, for good or for bad. No one escapes it, right? You're part of a family story regardless of what that family looks like. It makes you into who you are today. With that in mind, if you were starting a religion today, and I don't advise it, right? The IRS is all over this now, and the FBI, because the history of people starting religions in Texas now makes them kind of jumpy, right? But if you were starting a religion, and you wanted to present a savior of the world, what kind of family line would you have him born into, right? Well, if you wanted him to gain some traction in the great state of Texas, you would have him born into a story of deep significance, of dignity, of of acclaim, of fame, of accomplishment, of success. We would have him as some kind of strange love child of Matthew McConaughey and George Strait, right? You'd have to be in that sort of lineage. And yet when Matthew records the earthly family story of Jesus, it isn't at all what we expect it to be. There's sinners in there, so many of them, rogues, murderers, adulterers. You might go, well, there's some heroic characters in the, in the genealogy of Jesus, and they are for sure, but even those ones have secrets that no one wants to talk about at the dinner table. Abraham, who followed God with faith, wonderful. Abraham also twice, twice made his wife pretend to be his sister so he could sell her into a foreign king's group of possessions, right? Twice. Husband's in the room, <laughs> twice, right? You're not doing so bad, right? Abraham, why did he do it? He was a coward. He was a coward. He he feared for himself and so sold out his wife, not once, but twice. Jacob, Jacob was beloved by God. What a mysterious character, but he was known as a trickster and a fraudster. David, well, David, we know how complex he was. Why are they in there then? Because it reminds us that you're not too sinful for God's redemption to grab hold of your story. Your family story might be messy, it's not too messy for the grace of God, right? There's some vulnerable and desperate people in there. Rahab, Rahab's a woman of the night who risked her life in the midst of a war in an occupied city. Wow. Ruth, Ruth was a vulnerable and impoverished refugee widow. Do you get weaker than that? And yet she was obedient to God and used for mighty works. Mary, a likely illiterate, poverty-stricken, unwed, pregnant teenager. <laughs> so incredible to me that Jesus chose to be born into a family of poverty. 
You might say, oh, weren't they rich, right? They got the gold and frankincense and myrrh, and have you seen the price of frankincense these days, right? Inflation has come for everything. Um, but we are told that when they go to offer the offering, Joseph and, and Mary, um, as a purifying ceremony after Jesus' birth, they offer two turtle doves. You know who offered two turtle doves? The poorest of the poor. Everyone else had to offer a lamb. They couldn't afford one. Isn't it astonishing Jesus gets, chooses to be born into this family? Why? It tells us you're not too weak and exposed for God's great strength to shine through your story. There's also tons of people in the genealogy who just lived normal lives, right? Did the best for their kids, went to baseball games, uh, pretended their kid had a shot at playing pro ball and died and were largely forgotten, right? Or, or why? Because it tells us that your life isn't too boring to be connected to the great redemptive work of God in the world. Jesus' family tells us the kind of us that he came to be with. Secondly, the friends he kept tells us that he's with us no matter how weak we are. Friends, we know little of the early life of Jesus, but we know that as an adult, he was known for hanging with the wrong crowd. In Matthew's gospel in chapter nine, the religious people of the day get very upset with Jesus because he hangs out at the wrong parties. Religious people hate it when other people have fun, right? They throw the best parties and we hate it, right? He dines with tax collectors who are enemies of the common moral folk and sinners, Matthew says. Now you might say, isn't everyone a sinner? Yes, but when he describes sinners, he's describing a class of people who weren't even trying to keep up the ruse of being righteous anymore. They were like, we're a hot mess. You're welcome into the mess, right? And Jesus like, my people, right? And he goes and hangs out with them. You know what they call him as an accusation that is given to us as a comfort today? Jesus Christ, a friend of sinners. Now here's the thing we do. Our impulse is to claim that we aren't sinners. That sin isn't a big deal for us, right? I was at a Christmas music show um, the other night because, I don't know, masochism, I don't know. But um, we went to go watch uh, Chris Isaac at the Paramount because my musical taste is locked between the years of 1991 and 1994. No good music has been made outside of those three years. And so I went to go see Chris Isaac and he's 66 years old now, right? Now I knew Chris Isaac was an atheist going to the show and so him singing Christmas show, uh, songs felt strange. But then he started singing Oh Holy Night and I was like, oh my goodness, this is the greatest Christmas song ever written. I'm gonna give my life to Jesus all over again. There's gonna be an altar call because it's beautiful. We're gonna sing it afterwards. Feel free to give your life to Jesus again, right? But he got to the part in that song that I love where it says, long lay the world in sin and error pining. And he stopped and he said, I don't really like this line because religious people are really obsessed with sin. Why don't we just let people be and just everything will be fine. And everyone cheered. I was like, stupid. Because if you don't admit to sin, then you don't get access to a savior because you don't think you have need of one. What if owning our sin, what if owning our fallenness, owning our rebellion, our brokenness is actually the path to being friends with the divine? What if the thing we are doing to impress God and his people is actually the very thing that stands in the way of us experiencing the love and friendship of Jesus Christ? Jesus would go on to say that the greatest love anyone will ever show is to lay down their life for their friends. And then he says a remarkable thing to his sinner disciples. You are my friends. You're my friends. If you obey my commandments, he says. Jesus offers friendship to all who know that they don't have it sorted out, but who want to walk in the way that he taught us to live. Friends, you wanna walk in the way of Jesus? That's enough for friendship with him. You're not too unlovely to be loved by Jesus this Christmas. But listen, you do have to stop pretending to be so lovely. (laughs) 
Lastly, what about his followers? The followers that Jesus trusted tells us that he is with us as we seek to live life his way. I know that some of you go, hey look, I might get behind this Jesus thing, but the church, goodness gracious, what a disaster. And to that, as someone who works at the church, I say a hearty amen, right? I couldn't agree more. You say church leaders are a disaster, I say I am one, and yes, right? I have first-hand accounts of what a disaster that we actually are. I still can't believe Christianity has continued to this day. (laughs) When you consider the caliber of the people who have been leading the church since day one, and who still lead it today, the message just has to be true. Because <laughs> it hasn't been down to good leadership, let me tell you that much. God has always entrusted the strugglers with the greatest message. Who are the first messengers that he sends to announce that Jesus has been born? Shepherds. The least trustworthy people in society, he gives them the message. They go, they'll never believe us. He goes, exactly, exactly. He then chooses 12 disciples who are such a mixed bag, right? And he taught them patiently. He then left the church full of strugglers and scrappers and doubters and empowered them with the Holy Spirit to carry the message of God's love and grace. And this bunch of nobodies turned the world upside down. We're still doing it today, us. You can be part of that number, your life can count for the great message of the kingdom of God. Friends, this Christmas, you're not too weak, you're not too unlikely, your life isn't too messy for you to go on to be a faithful messenger of the kingdom of God which has come through Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. God with us, the greatest claim in history, with us, even us, even you. Don't waste it. Merry Christmas, Austin Stone. Father God, thank you so much for your word. I pray that today somehow through the clutter and the noise, that we actually just hear the message afresh, this remarkable claim that, that has changed the cosmos, God with us. Oh, how differently we, we would live if we believed that. Lord, thank you that you didn't leave us to figure it out, to climb a ladder to you, to, to have to get to a level of persuasion. Thank you that we don't have to hide our sin, our frailty, our failing. We can bring it to you. And then your son Jesus says that he'll be our friend if we just simply commit to live his way. Lord, I pray for those in the room who have never made that commitment to live this way, have never invested this historic claim, have always kind of reduced it to the level of myth. Why don't you help them doubt their doubts today? Perhaps start a journey of faith today afresh. Father, I pray for those who would say they believe but who don't experience this deep friendship with Jesus because they don't believe he's a friend of sinners and so they're trying to pretend like they're not one. Give us courage this Christmas to receive the gift of grace. And Father, I pray for those of us who are just simply trying to walk the road with our friend Jesus Christ. You've always used simple people like us, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do impossible things. Do it again. In Jesus' name, amen.